Well, hey, everyone. So excited to join you today as we continue uh, this series we've been doing in the study of Malachi, the question of how. And uh, this week, last Sunday, would have been the third sermon series, and it is founded in Malachi chapter 2, starting with verse number 10. Uh, last two Sundays ago, Fred uh, shared with us uh, from chapter 1 into chapter 2 about how Malachi was prophesying to the post-exilic community that has returned after exile and trying to get reestablished back into what it means to be a covenant community. God had made a covenant, a conditional covenant, with the children of Israel on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai through Moses and established Israel as his covenant people. And a part of that is, is that as Israel would follow the prescription of that covenant, God would bless. But as they would not follow and live in disobedience, uh, they would receive the curses of that covenant. So now they find themselves in this post-exilic community, um, having been gone for probably at least 100 years and trying to figure out what this looks like again. And they were living in a lot of discouragement and I'm sure, um, you know, just a lot of confusion. We talked about how there's three things that are kind of tied hand in hand to this book, spiritual apathy, a lack of faith, and immorality. Well, it kind of comes to a head in this passage that we're going to look at briefly today. And if you uh, saved your bulletin from Sunday, I'll give you those blanks. But I want to read the passage, make some quick comments, and then give you those, give you those points. Bible starts in Malachi 2, verse 10, says, Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously against his, against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? I want you to pay attention because the word treacherous appears five times in this passage. Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut him off from the tents of Jacob, everyone who awakes and answers, or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears and with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has the remnant of the Spirit. And what did he that did what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit. And let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and he, he who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Now this is a very loaded passage, and of course there's, there's things in this passage that not dealt with in its proper context could be could be misconstrued, but I want you to think about this word treacherous and the idea of the covenant. The word treacherous means to betray. It means to uh, have a lack of trust. It means to, 
not have fidelity. It, it gives this idea of not acting faithfully to something. But what God is calling us to in this passage is faithfulness, specifically covenant faithfulness. As the people of God, the Israelites would understand this, that, that they have been called into a relationship with God together. You know, one Israelite doesn't make a covenant group. It took the Israelites. And God made a promise to that people group, that nation, that they would be his chosen people to live as representatives to the world, uh, that based on the Abrahamic covenant, which is an unconditional covenant, he promised to give them land and he promised to give them um, descendants and to be their Lord. And and so you you see them coming back from, from exile, but not having learned the lessons of why they went into exile in the first place. And those who were guilty are gone. But the legacy of that disobedience is still having an impact. And so as this begins in verse number 10, the appeal of the people toward God is, do we not, there's talking to one another, do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Well, why is that important? Well, because the central to the issue here is that these post-exilic people have returned, these Israelites have returned, and they're marrying people of other cultures. They are marrying outside the covenant group, which is probably why they then say, why do we deal treacherously against uh, his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? They're in this together. There's a unity implied. There's a there's a connectedness in that, like Joshua 7 with ache and sin, he sinned and it affected the entire covenant community. And so we see this here again, this idea of marrying outside of what God intended, which was not to marry outside of the covenant group of God. In fact, if you if you want to go back in in into the Old Testament before this point, there there's a couple of examples, um, especially in the post-exilic uh, time frame. Ezra had to deal with the same issue. If you look at Ezra chapter ten. Uh, he couches this same idea of the Israelites returning and intermarrying with pagan women as being unfaithful to God. In other words, in our marriage, in our marriage covenants, we are reflecting the marriage. The, the we are reflecting the covenant that we that we enter in with God. And to to separate those two is to not see them as one in the same. The covenant of God is here, and we act in other covenants based upon this covenant here. It's that idea that how my my life relates to God vertically affects people horizontally. Same thing. Nehemiah even had to deal with the same thing in, in chapter 13. They were intermarrying, and he refers back to someone very well known that did the same thing, and that was King Solomon. You know, of all Solomon did, his glory, his wisdom, unfortunately, the end of his life wasn't very good because he was intermarrying and marrying a lot of different women that were bringing in these pagan practices, bringing in these pagan gods, and it actually pulled his heart away from the Lord. I mean, out of all the things, when we read the book of Proverbs, we see a man who who loved the Lord, but at the end of his life, he, he had drifted away. And that's this call here 
that he's saying Judah has dealt treacherously and has committed an abomination. And he talks about cutting men off in the tents. The reason they did that is because they wanted to stop the immorality. That they, they, it was so serious that they wanted to, to cut that off. But where was it being evidenced? It was being evidenced in this idea of marriage. And there's two things I want you to hear about marriage in this thing. Number one, you need to make a good choice about who you marry. If there's nothing that you get out of this passage other than that, you need to make a good choice in who you marry. Why? Because it affects the connection that you have back to the Lord. God has entered into a covenant with us through his son Christ, an unconditional covenant. There's nothing we bring to the table in the new covenant. Jesus did everything. He extends it to us as a free gift. We accept that gift. We repent of our sin. We receive the word of God, and that saves us. That's what the new covenant exists for. But just like with this covenant, that covenant is moving us that if we're being faithful to the Lord, then we need to be faithful to God in our obedience. And so God is saying here, you need to be careful. When you... When you hang out with the wrong crowd, when you marry people and you are not equally yoked, you know, a lot of people misuse that passage to talk about that races shouldn't intermix. It's not about the color of someone's skin. It's about that if this person is lost and is and maybe even pursuing paganism or, or some kind of different God, and you as a Christian marry them, I can tell you, you can have all the hope in the world, but once you get married, it's not going to change. And so we honor God in who we choose to marry. But then it goes another step. We look back at verse number 13. He says, this thing you do, you cover the altar of the Lord with tears and weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering and accepts it with favor from your hand. There's this accusation. God, you're not showing up in fire and consuming our sacrifices. And so just like the pagans, they're laying across the altar and weeping and crying. When you study the Old Testament, that altar wasn't a place for that. That altar was a place to bring your sacrifice. So let me tell you this. Worship that doesn't cost you anything, it's not a sacrifice. And they're not the only ones that ever cried or got upset over God not accepting an offering. If you go back to the book of Genesis, chapter 4, Cain brought an offering to the Lord. He made a sacrifice, but because of the condition of his heart, God rejected that offering. And so what did he do? He killed his brother. You see, and that's what he's, he's trying to point home here is this. Yes, God did create everybody. One father, one God. Everyone's a sinner. The people of Israel was God's chosen people called out from the world to be different, to be unique, to follow in those covenant paths. Here they are trying to rebuild their, their lives, rebuild uh, the city, and begin to operate again in covenant fidelity, but the priests weren't leading them well, bringing blind sheep. I mean, I told Fred, man, you, you get the blind sheep, I get divorced. How's that fair? But here's the thing. It's, it's that they were bringing things to the Lord, but in their covenant relationship with their brothers and their sisters, and especially their wives, they weren't. So when you get to verse number 14, and they say back to him, what reason? It's really the only, the only time that we don't have the, the direct question, how? But for what reason? Well, the how comes back to the people. How is it? That, why is it that God won't accept it? Because they have not been, uh, they have been treacherous to their wives. 
when you go back and study Ezra, Ezra commanded those Israelites to divorce and put those children away. That's, that's hard for us to understand. Like, why would God do that? Because, again, to cut off, to put them out of the tent, they knew if they didn't cut off that paganism creeping right back in to Israel, they would be right back in the same place again. Now, he says, I don't, I don't want divorce. I hate it. Does God hate divorce? Yes. Did God command divorce? Never. When you study the Bible, the only reason that Jesus even gave for divorce was, was infidelity. Which is why when it says earlier in this text, you need to be careful of who you choose to marry. Now, here's the second thing. Marriage is for life. In the book of Matthew, chapter 19, the Pharisees challenged Jesus with this question. And Jesus responds back with the spiritual formula of marriage from Genesis 2. A man shall leave his father and mother, cling to his wife, and the two become one flesh. That's why we as conservative Christians believe that marriage is only between one man and one woman committed for life. And anything outside that relationship, any activity, is sexual immorality. So my friends that are out there that may want to condemn homosexuality but doesn't condemn adultery or premarital sex, you're wrong. It's all a perversion of the covenant that is in marriage. And if our covenant with God is here, the marriage covenant should be here. It should be regarded as holy. And that when we when we enter into that relationship, when when marriage comes, it should be it should be treated. It should it should never be an option. I don't know about you, but when I married Laura, I said to her, "The word divorce won't come into my vocabulary. It's just not. It's not. It's not a well. I'm just not getting along. I'm going to bail out on this. Why? Because when you bail out on this, you're not regarding the covenant of God as being holy, and that's the message." It, uh, from that verse, and he keeps going on. He says, but not one has done so without a remnant of the Spirit. Done so what? Thought marriage. These men wanted to, to, to reproduce. It's one of the reasons that God created marriage. If the spiritual part of marriage is one man and one woman becoming, becoming one, it's seen in the spiritual aspect. But the physical aspect of that is reproduction. Two becoming one flesh. How better is that evidenced than then with our children, too, becoming one flesh. And they desired to see godly offspring. But here's the truth. Just having the ability to produce offspring doesn't mean you're going to produce godly offspring. You have to model the covenant of God to your children, working it in every aspect of your life if you want your children to turn out godly. You can't just expect it just because they show up. And I think it's 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 just it's it's one of those things where you're, you're sitting here and you're thinking about your future and you're thinking about the things you want to transfer to your kids. Parents, the greatest thing you can offer to your kids is a strong relationship with your spouse, showing that love and that commitment. And that's that's what is meant by that by that that phrase in verse number sixteen where he says. And who covers his garment with wrong? In other words, he was taking, in that culture, they would, the man would take a shawl and put it around the woman as a sign of love and protection. And they were abusing that. In fact, this is just a sign of abuse. But look, look at how it affects those. It says, so take heed to your spirit. 
that you do not deal treacherously. Five times the word treacherously has, has appeared. And when I'm not being true to myself, when I'm not being honest with myself and where I stand, when I'm making excuses for the things that I do, if I'm playing the victim and saying, you know what, I've been wronged and I have permission to continue acting the way that I am, rather than saying, God, show me where I am. Show me where I'm wrong. Give me the strength to move past this. Because if I don't, if I'm not being honest with myself, I can't be honest with my spouse. If I'm not being honest with my spouse, how can I be honest with the God of heaven? And so if you do have that outline from from Sunday, here was the question. Question number three was, God refused their offerings. Why did he do that? For what reason? That's the next blank. For what reason? Israel had acted treacherously, faithless. In fact, if you want to, just write out the word to the side there, faithless. And so here's the challenge is how can I show faithfulness? Well, the first thing I need to do is I need to prioritize the covenant. The aspect that Jesus Christ has called me into a relationship with him, that he saved me, put his spirit inside of me, ought to be the number one operating value in my life. That if he's given me grace, then I need to give grace. If he's shown me forgiveness, I need to show forgiveness. And I need to understand that in the life of the faith community, in the covenant community, that my behavior, my lack of behavior, my lack of involvement, or the way that I'm treating my brother or sister affects affects the way God works within that covenant community. The second one here says worship sincerely. You know what? I do believe that we can be moved emotionally to tears and to mourning. Because, I mean, if you read the book of Psalms, you see multiple times where, where David poured out his heart, poured out his soul before the Lord. But what we're going to see in the next message is well, God will, will then say, well, you've wearied me. How, how can we wear God out? We can't wear God out. But what I'm saying is that when we worship sincerely, we need to think about what is it I'm bringing to worship that costs me something. That's a sacrifice, a sacrifice of praise or a sacrifice in my giving, a sacrifice in my state, a sacrifice in my preference. I'm giving it to the Lord. For example, let's say, say we choose a song you really don't like. I'll be honest with you. There's some songs that are in Christendom right now. I don't really like them. But instead of standing there pouting and folding my arms and wishing for something different, what if I took that time to pray? What if I took that time to to just use my own words and say, Lord, I thank you for, for how glorious you are and, and use, use that time while other people may be, be enjoying and, and using that song to focus that worship. Take the time to worship that way. Third point here is this, honor God in marriage. You honor God with the way you choose. Listen, if you're single and you're listening to me right now, I'm going to tell you something. You need to think long and hard about who it is before you marry them. If you are not equally yoked in faith, it isn't going to be any different after you get married. You think maybe five years into this, you start having problems and you go, hey, we'll just go to Christian counseling. Your spouse is not going to go. You need to, to vet and you need to weigh it out and don't make a poor choice because I'm telling you, it will catch up to you. And you know what? And some of you, you've gone through divorce and I am so sorry. That breaks my heart. And I think too often the church has used it as a point that divorce, for some reason, is the unforgivable sin. But it's not. 
It's not an unforgivable sin. Adultery can be forgiven. Premarital sex can be forgiven. These things are forgivable. Why? Because of the cross. Jesus paid for it. What Jesus wants to do is have that fresh start. That whatever commitment you have moving forward, that you commit to it with all your heart. That there is no plan B. There is only one plan is that whoever I marry, I'm going to be with them to the day I leave this world. And the third thing is to guard your spirit. You need to guard your spirit. In fact, I, I want to read 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, chapter 6, uh, starting in verse number 18. It's after uh, really God is, uh, Paul is talking about the idea of joining oneself with a harlot, you know, and, and how that just doesn't make sense. But he's, he's burrowing down into why. Why is that? So here's what he says. He says, flee immorality. Flee it. Sexual immorality, all kinds of immorality, but sexual immorality in particular. God said, I hate divorce, even though God has given permission. Listen, if, if, if your spouse has been cheating on you, you know, you, you, you know, Jesus said, except for sexual immorality or infidelity, you can divorce. But he's not commanding you to do it. I, I know, I've known many couples that said, you know what, we're going to make this work. Now, for the person that's guilty of the infidelity, they need a lot of help. But being able to see that marriage restored is beautiful. So he says, flee immorality. Every sin that a man commits is outside the body. But check this out. But the immoral sin is against his own body. In other words, I believe like all the sins, you put them all on the table, they're all the same in regards to death. We all deserve death for our sin. Sexual sins is when you sin against your own body. Well, why? Because he says this, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? Well, wait a minute. So if I'm using my body in a way that God doesn't want me to, that's a sin. Well, why is it a sin? Because I belong to God. This isn't just my body. We hear that in culture a lot. It's my body. Let me do it. Do with it what I want to. But that's not what Christianity teaches. Christianity teaches that you're not your own. It's not your body. It's God's body. Why is that important? You've been bought with a price. Therefore, we glorify God with our body. Our body being that temple, that place that God wants to reside. I need to make it holy. And so how do I do that? That last blank there. I need to be grounded in faithfulness. I need to be, I need to be faithful to the covenant God has entered in with me. I need to be faithful in the covenant of my family, my friends, my church people, those who are around me because my spiritual life affects them and theirs affects me. I need to honor God in my marriage. I need to be faithful in my marriage. I need to put blocks on my phones and my, and my screens, men, so that I'm not seeing those things that I don't need to see. And it's everywhere. It needs to be out there. But you know why? Because I need to guard my spirit. I need to be faithful to myself. I need to be faithful to what God's put inside of me and watch that begin to take root and to grow. Why? Because God's got a plan for your life and mine. He had a plan for the Israelites. And this Sunday, we're going to kind of kind of be talking about it again. We're going to look at it a bit, but there's a, there's a verse in there that I can't wait to share where God begins to talk about, you know what? I'm here because I don't change. I do not change. And that's the greatest truth I think you and I can, can carry from this. God's been faithful to us, so let's make the commitment 
to be faithful to him. Hope you're going to join us this Sunday as we continue this series.